Um, so if you are thinking what I am thinking, you're probably thinking, why is the guy who sometimes butchers the announcements uh, up here during the sermon slot? And I'll, I'll answer that question more as we get into this. Um, uh, so when I'm not up here guessing at dates and times, um, I'm typically putting stuff on the internet on behalf of the church. And um, I'm also a part of the worship planning team. And so sometimes I have ideas that we use. This maybe seems like maybe a bad idea, um, <laughs> but uh, we're, we're, we're going to roll with it. Um, another thing I do here is that I lead um, the Room 2 Sunday School class, and that is um, a group of people who are uh, working out faith in a really conversational way. And so we had, it was, Casey, it was so great. We, we talked this morning about uh, the word Lord and um, how uh, we could rethink that idea. So, um, uh, and then in a yet a different part of my life, I'm also a spiritual director. And what that means is um, that I meet with people all over the world. Uh, I like to say that because I have one client that lives in the British Virgin Islands. Um, so <laughs> I'm worldwide. Um, <laughs> uh, but um, I meet with people in person and on Zoom. I talk to them about faith and do spiritual formation work and um, uh, a lot of conversation around uh, being anything from being better people to understanding God differently, um, and, and, and a lot of times in, in really vulnerable states of faith. And so um, this talk today is a continuation of our series, uh, When We Collide, and the theme today is wrestling with ourselves. And so I'm going to talk today about contemplative spirituality, about power, about the 12 steps, the Enneagram, and how our faith invites us to wait on God. So we're going to look uh, at a few encounters in Scripture where God interacts with people in a pretty unique way, um, and then we'll see how we're invited into this same sort of interaction. So I'm going to start, if you can remember, all the way back to 1999. Um, remember, it was the end of the world, right? And so I, I spent a couple of months um, putting uh, Y2K patches onto computers, because remember, if the clock turned over wrong, the world was going to blow up or something. So since none of that happened, I just got paid for literally doing nothing. But um, <laughs> there was a movie in 1999. We, we, apparently, we liked weird movies. So there was a movie in 1999 called Fight Club. And so some of you probably have seen this movie. But um, the main characters are Brad Pitt and Edward Norton. And spoiler alert from 20-something years ago, but um, the main characters are actually just one person. Um, and so the first time we meet them, they are in a parking lot beating each other up, um, and uh, thus the fight club. So they, they got together and they would fight. So the first time we see them, the two of them are in a parking lot fist fighting, Yet, what we come to know later in the movie is it's just one person who is literally punching himself and throwing himself on the ground, and he is winning and losing all at the same time. And maybe you can relate to that. Um, many of us have moments or days wrestling with ourselves. Maybe we're not throwing ourselves on the ground in a parking lot, but uh, we have things um, that are actively beating ourselves up over things like the gifts of our past, or our family, or addiction, or repetitive patterns. Um, those things do the job of beating us up enough for us. So um, what I'm talking about here is just the personal wrestling match with control. What is in control of our lives? Who is in control of our lives? Um, it's the conflict that we're all involved in. Control is the question of who has the power. And many of us spend the better part of our lives working hard to be in control of our lives. 
Okay, so the Enneagram, and um, I'm, I'm, I'm not an expert, but I've done a lot of work in the Enneagram, but one thing I promise you, which is I'm not going to talk a lot about the Enneagram, because there's nothing worse in the world to have to listen to someone talk about the Enneagram when you don't know anything about the Enneagram, so um, I promise this is like all, I've said Enneagram a lot just now, and that's, I'm not going to keep saying it, but um, uh, in, in the Enneagram's teachings, which is a wisdom teaching, in the Enneagram's teaching, um, there are nine ideas, um, and we call these ideas the holy ideas, and they exist outside of ourselves. And these ideas are perfection and will and law, holy origin, holy omniscience, holy faith, holy plan, holy truth, and holy love. These are the divine things that exist outside of us. And the way the Enneagram talks about it is when we're very little, um, sometimes in the womb, sometimes uh, before two years old, before you can speak, you lose touch with these big things in the world. And when you lose touch with those things, we do this thing that is a protective thing. And in Texas, we would say we grab the bull by the horns or we grab the power because we no longer trust that the power that exists outside of ourselves is working on behalf of us. So to protect ourselves, we take that power back. We stop expecting, um, we stop expecting that God would be involved in our lives, and so we put ourselves in charge. Does this sound like something that maybe you've experienced? So one of my spiritual direction clients, after working through a number of things in her life, she kept coming back to the same problem. It was an issue that would show up over and over for her, even though she worked really hard at trying to work through it and resolve it, but it was an issue with how she interacted with her family. And through multiple iterations of the same story, she was finding her life unmanageable. And so hang on to that word. She was finding her life unmanageable. And in my meeting with her, she asked for something very specific. She wanted out, and she wanted a step-by-step -step plan to change her life and get her out of this repeating wrestling match. Well, the only spiritual plan that I know of that is literally a step-by-step -step plan or a process is the actual 12 steps. Um, now, these steps are primarily known for alcohol or addiction recovery, and they're used for all kinds of things, but the beauty of them is that you can use them to radically transform your situation. The steps, however, do ask one thing of you. You must use them contemplatively. A contemplative, so a definition of that word, a contemplative is someone who seeks direct awareness of the divine. This means that a contemplative reaches out to God, often involving prayer or meditation, and we'll see this at work in the steps. So step one says, we admitted we were powerless over and you can fill in the blank. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol, approval from others, pride, perfection, being smarter, and that our lives had become unmanageable. We were powerless. Everything that we tried to do to be in charge of our own lives actually made our lives unmanageable. So then we arrive at step two. Once we can agree and accept step one, we can come to step two, which says... We came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. What is the definition of someone who repeats the same thing over and over and expects the same result? Well, step two offers us a different path. It offers a path towards sanity. And then we find our way to step three, which says, we made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood God.
Now, this is something that sounds like what all Christians should do. It sounds like something we believe that we should turn our lives over to God. So it sounds like something that we believe and maybe we preach about and talk about, but how often are we actually doing this? Remember, I'm talking about this power struggle. It's a tough thing to do. It's also a daily journey to turn our lives over to God. We often don't do this because we're afraid of what might happen. We trust what we know most often, even if it leads us to bad things. And so there's this story that plays out in Scripture, and it's in Exodus 14, and we encounter the first reference of contemplative action in the Bible. You remember Moses? Remember this story? Moses, he goes to Egypt. There's a bunch of plagues, like frogs and stuff, and there's a bunch of plagues, and then finally uh, the Pharaoh says, okay, you can leave. Take your people and leave. And so they leave, and they travel for a bit, and they come to this body of water called the Red Sea. So they find themselves at the Red Sea, and um, that's, that's where we're going to pick up. So there, there's the Red Sea that they need to cross, and they notice what's coming behind them. And so I'm going to read from Exodus 14, starting in verse 10. It says, And when Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. So they were very afraid. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. And then they said to Moses, Because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Have you so dealt with us to bring us up out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we told you in Egypt, saying, let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than we should just go out here and die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. The Lord will fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. Be still. You will see salvation, and it will give you peace. What is implied here is that the salvation of the Lord is entered into by what? Stillness. And now, the idea of salvation here, it predates Jesus by a good bit. Um, So if you... We're looking at crossing a large body of water with the greatest military force in the world that the world had ever known was marching in your direction. You would likely, likely agree that your life had in this moment actually become unmanageable. <laughs> um, so wherever you are today, it likely doesn't require this same kind of example, right? But your salvation, but salvation is available to you today. It's something that exists outside of you. It's something that you can agree with, that you can step into. Salvation is present. It is now. So last week in room two, we were talking about what to do with salvation as a concept. We had been challenged to see salvation not as an in or out thing that you would do in the afterlife, but as something that would need to be complexified for it to make a little bit more sense for us today. But it's something that we could enter into today. And so here in this passage, the key that opens the door of salvation is stillness. We have to stop trying to be the power broker of our own lives. We have to begin stopping trying to think or feel or do our way into salvation. So can I back up to that Enneagram uh, list that I made real quick? Okay, I lied. I said the word Enneagram again. Um, But um, uh, so in the Enneagram, you would say it like this, those holy ideas. To experience holy omniscience, I have to stop trying to be smarter than everybody else. To experience holy perfection, 
you have to stop trying to dictate to yourself and to others what is the right and wrong way to do things. To experience God's holy truth in this world, you have to let yourself be vulnerable. You have to let go and be open to God's truth. To find the holy of your own story, you're going to have to live a different pattern. And to live a new life is like being reborn. To let go and trust God or the holy is scary. And it doesn't make logical sense. To be still opens the door to salvation. And this brings me to another encounter in Scripture. Here in this encounter, we see Jesus um, asking someone to do what Moses asked the children of Israel to do. To let go of their past and the thing that they had trusted to move forward into a new and bigger future. So I call him Saint Nicodemus, um, and he's the patron saint of deconstruction. And the last time that I checked, I'm not allowed to give sainthood to anybody, but um, he's sort of my saint, and he, uh, he reflects a lot of my own story and reminds me of my own story. And so if you know his story, Nicodemus is referred to as a religious leader of his people, but he does a, he does a peculiar thing. He comes to Jesus at night. And what he seems to be doing is trying to understand, um, he's trying to understand who Jesus is, but in doing so, Jesus sort of flips the tables on him, and uh, he turns the idea, Nicodemus's idea of kingdom from an earthly one into a spiritual one. And it's here that we famously know Nicodemus's uh, question, which is, how can a person enter their mother's womb a second time and be born again? Right, that is a real and authentic question. How do you make such a drastic change that you would be born again? Is that something we have to like get back in the womb? That doesn't seem right. Um, but in the, re, in, re, in the remaining steps of the 12 steps, um, we really have to own up to everything that we have done and, and learn to make it all right. So we have to do a number of things. We have to make a fearless moral inventory of our own lives. We have to make lists of wrongs and the people they involve and work through them. We have to forgive. We have to make amends. We have to work the steps. We begin living life anew. First, we trusted our life to God, and now we have to go about the process of making the wrong things right. To be born again, we have to be honest with ourselves. I'm going to finish today with a story from my own life. Um, have you ever heard yourself say something and thought, wow, that was good? <laughs> the other day I was counseling a friend about a family situation that he was having with a couple of his brothers, and um, he's, he feels like he's been wronged in the past. And um, I was telling him, hey, it's not your job to offer grace. Uh, that's God's job. It's your job to make amends or to be involved with forgiveness um, and that maybe has nothing to do with your brother, but everything to do with you. So it's easy to tell someone that. It's a more difficult thing to do in your own life. So my story goes like this. I have a family member, maybe like some of you, who over the past number of years, our relationship has just gotten really strained. And it hurts. It's not the way that I thought things would go. I'm often sad about it. Um, our situation, I just don't see how it resolves itself. Um, and it had become so toxic that my family doesn't really speak to each other. And holidays are weird, and 
uh, they're sad, like I feel like we should have better Christmases or things like that. Um, but through work with my therapist and with my spiritual director, um, I had to come to a place where I knew that really the only way to heal the wrong here was for me to be about the business of forgiveness. Um, and there was a lot to forgive. Um, this, this, this relationship needed a lot of forgiveness and a lot of grief. And so I sit here today knowing that I've done that work. So it doesn't mean that that relationship is fixed. It's not. It's not resolved. It doesn't mean the outcome is even up to me. It's bigger than me. It's outside of me. I've experienced grace by letting go. And so it's not my job to control the outcome. My work, our work, becomes the wrestling with myself uh, to do what it takes to be ready to receive God's grace in my own life. So we can continue to beat ourselves up. We can continue to fight for control. Or we can be still and find a new way to live and realize that our salvation is here. It is now. It is today. Amen.